Today's episode is brought to you by Julie Meyerson's Nonfiction, a novel that explores maternal love as an emotional foundation to both crave and fear, a story of damage and addiction, recovery and creativity, compassion and love. Nonfiction, a novel, is an unflinching account of a mother, daughter, wife, and author reckoning with the world around her. Called Powerful and Utterly Compelling by Sarah Waters and Glitteringly Painful by Rachel Cusk, Meyerson's novel asks, can a writer ever be trusted with the truth of her own story? Nonfiction and novel is available now from Tin House. I am unusually attracted to conversations with writers like Matthias Enar, not only because he himself has thought so deeply about his books, and not only because his protagonists are often deep thinkers, curious people, people seeking encounter and pursuing meaning-making in some way, but also because his books have a politics or ethos that is related to questions of the other and otherness, often related to the artificial boundary between the Occident and the Orient, and the ways they are actually, in his mind, co-constructed and interdependent, each found within the other. An ethos written against the more common and reflexive way that the Arab and Muslim world is treated as alien, foreign, and irredeemably other by Europe. And also because he's a lover of forms. And somehow his use of forms, instead of becoming constraints, somehow unleashes a literary freedom for him, even as he pays homage to non-normative literary forms in Arabic or French or Spanish literature in the process. As an example of his roving mind, today's conversation touches on everything from scandalous Polish anthropologists to the Buddhist Wheel of Time, from Jewish undertaker guilds to what it means to be a microhistorian and what implications that has for what and how one writes. If you enjoyed today's conversation, or if you've enjoyed others before today, Perhaps one of your New Year's resolutions will be to join the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. Every supporter at every level of support gets the resource email with each episode full of the video, audio, and written work that I discovered while preparing for the conversation and that we referenced during it which in this case includes some harder-to-find things, as there are not that many examples of public events with Matthias in English. And every supporter can join our ongoing collective brainstorm of who to invite in the future, something that has shaped the roster each year. In addition, there are tons of other things to choose from, whether the Tin House Early Readership Program, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to the bonus audio archive, which includes supplemental readings, craft talks, and most relevant to today, long-form conversations with translators. Matthias' translator for his latest book, Frank Wynn, and I have exchanged emails, but we weren't able to arrange something before this episode launched. 
but I still hope this will happen as this book in particular, the one we discussed today, presents at least 5 million translator conundrums for Frank that I'd love to explore with him. But in the meantime, there are many to listen to. The French translator conversations include one with Beverly B. Brahek, the translator of Alain Sixou, who's also a particularly difficult writer to translate, and Emma Ramadan, the translator of Abdella Taya. In addition, there are conversations with Spanish translators, Megan McDowell, Sophie Hughes, Sarah Booker, and Suzanne Jill Levine, about translating Mariana Enriquez, Alejandro Zambra, Fernanda Melchor, and Cristina Rivera Garza. There's Ellen Elias Bursich about translating Dubrovka Ugresich, Kurt Beals about translating Jenny Erpenbeck, to just name a few of them. And of course, there are also all the main conversations with all of these authors themselves. So as we start a new year in 2024, check out all of this and more at patreon.com slash between the covers and consider joining us as part of the between the covers community going forward. And now for today's episode with none other than Matthias Enar. morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, novelist Matthias Senar, was born, raised, and educated in France, where he studied contemporary art at École de Louvre and Persian and Arabic at the National Institute for Oriental Languages and Civilizations in Paris. Enar spent many years in the Middle East, in Egypt, Lebanon, Iran, and Syria, and since then has been a long-standing resident in Barcelona, where he has taught Arabic at the University of Barcelona, and where he has run a Lebanese restaurant called Caracalla. His debut novel in English was The Book Zone, which was written almost entirely in one single 150,000-word sentence, and explores the culture of the Mediterranean basin from Spain to Algeria, Italy to Lebanon, a book called by Publishers Weekly, Homeric in its scope and grandeur, remarkable in its detail, and a screaming take on history, war, and violence. Soon followed Street of Thieves, which spans from Occupy to the Arab Spring, and then Compass, for which Anar was shortlisted for the Dublin Literary Award and the International Man Booker Prize, and which won the Prix Goncourt in France, the Leipzig Prize in Germany, and the Premio von Rizzori in Italy, a book that traces the often elided or obscured connections between Western humanities and history and Islamic and Arabic philosophy and culture. His next book, Tell Them of Battles, Kings, and Elephants, was constructed from real historical fragments and yet imagines Michelangelo accepting the invitation by the Sultan of Constantinople to design a bridge over the Golden Horn. 
we follow Michelangelo's notebook as he explores and sketches the beauty and wonder of the Ottoman Empire and works on his greatest architectural masterwork. Julian Lucas for The New Yorker calls this book a richly suggestive Renaissance counter-narrative, like Michelangelo's The Creation of Adam. The story hangs on the electric potential of an unrealized touch. All these books mentioned were brought into English by the translator Charlotte Mondell. Matya Sanar is here today to talk about his latest novel and is first to be translated by Frank Wynne, the annual banquet of the Gravediggers Guild from New Directions in the U.S. and Fitzcarraldo editions in the U.K. Jeet Tail says of Inar's latest, Recklessly, omnisciently, dazzlingly, Matthias Inar over the last 20 years has been inventing one of the most visionary oeuvres in French literature. In this book, by excavating a remote rural corner, and inhabiting in turn every living thing there, man, woman, and beast. He gives us the gift of deep verticality, where a sentence spools into other sentences, other stories, other epochs, and resolves into a history of Europe. John Phipps for The Times adds that this is a book drowned in wine and war and banquets, and incest, and pointless scholarship, and bestiality, and mire, and grimy rural death. And finally, The Economist says, the annual banquet of the Gravediggers Guild is an earthy, Rabelaisian riot of a novel, dripping with slime, bugs, gluttony, death, and body decay. A dizzying concoction which carries a surprising tenderness. Welcome to Between the Covers, Matthias Sinar. Thank you. So this book, in your own words, is your first very French book, despite you yourself being French, born and raised in France. This book is set in and around your hometown of Niort, which is noteworthy because when you talk about your hometown or when you have in the past, you've talked about how you always dreamed of an elsewhere. For instance, in an event in Sarajevo, you said, one great advantage of being from a boring town is the desire to see the world and to learn languages. And elsewhere, you've talked about how you gravitated towards books as a child and teenager that took you on a long journey to distant places, far from your small, middle-class French town. Likewise, when you decided you wanted to be a writer, you felt like you needed to know something first before you could write something beyond what you knew in this place where you were. And part of the appeal for you to choose Arabic and Persian as your topics of study was that the university closest to your home didn't teach these languages, that this choice would, by definition, require that you move away, in, in your case, to Paris. But it wasn't long before you were living in Iran and in Egypt during your years of university and only going back to Paris for the exams. Your books, I think, also demonstrate this looking outward. We are in Lebanon, Istanbul, Morocco, the Balkans, and even in conversations about languages, you defamiliarize them, I think. You talk about how in learning Persian, you realize that the language stretched from Sarajevo to Burma, that you re-see geography through the discovery of languages' reach. And the same, I think, could be true about Arabic. 
But here we are today discussing a book set in your hometown. And I think a great place to start would be to talk about how you came to make this full circle back, what it was like to discover this desire in yourself to return and what the re-encounter was like for you of um, coming home literally, but, but in a literary way. Thank you very much. Uh, I think when I, I first I began uh, to think about the banquet, the book, it was probably 2009, right after I wrote Zone. I was living in Barcelona by then. I, I was about to move to Berlin, but I was uh, back home here in Barcelona. And I thought, what would it be like to write about France? What would I write about exactly if I were to decide to write a novel about my hometown, what would I probably write about? But it was like like only an idea in the air. So I, I took a few notes and was quite discouraged. I said, what well, you know, it's, uh, it's still this really uninteresting, boring neighborhood where I grew up. And I didn't find anything really worth the writing in my own childhood or in my own memories. Uh, by then, so I, I just discarded the idea and said, well, I will see about that later on. And then a few years afterwards, when I had written uh, Compass, I thought that uh, it would be probably interesting to look at my own region, this western part of France, very flat without any mountains or hills or anyway, uh, in a more orientalistic kind of way to see it like someone from outside would see it and to find um, let's say a very strange angle you know, to to this um, vision of of that place and I said well now after 20 years I'll grow then I maybe probably I'll be able to to write um, something interesting about this part. And that's when, you know, my, my wife is a Buddhist and um, I was reading a lot about reincarnation at that time. And I imagined that, oh, it would be great to see and it would be more literary wise interesting to see it through um, a Buddhist perspective. Mm. And so the, the first, the first quote, the quote that opens the book, well, it's a quote from 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 the Buddha, quoted by a, a very very important uh, Buddhist scholar called Dishnat Han. Um, that was the, the first thing, really, the first thing of the book was this idea that we were um, all of us uh, in the past or in the future, we are to be and have been anything. It means animals, plants, or even storms and. Uh, clouds. So I said, "Oh, that that's that means that everything is 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 really." Um, let's say that this part of France was uh, suddenly very interesting to me, and I said I could probably try to write the history of France and through France the history of Europe through this very little space mm -hmm. and very little place, and uh, and that's how it all began. Uh, but to do this, I needed um, um, 
a character for us to, to enter, you know, a point of view uh, who would be like just like me coming back, you know, from from abroad. And uh, uh, that was David Mazon when that was when when I I, uh, I imagined David uh, David's uh, character. Um, because I needed someone to, to introduce us, you know, from one from abroad, uh, like an Orientalist. Well, I want to ask you about David, but one more question about sort of returning to Nior first. In, a, in an interview you gave it in Granta, you talked about how when you returned to Nior, you, you actually found it profoundly exotic and strange in some ways. Mm -hmm. And it made me think about when you were 18, and you were writing poems and stories, but you didn't yet know if you wanted to be a creative writer or an academic writer or a journalist. And you took an opportunity to go to Lebanon toward the end of the Civil War, and you accompanied an embedded war photographer. And it was there that you realized how war changes everything from interpersonal relations to geography, even experiences of time and distance. So short distances during war can be really far away. And how, when you returned to Lebanon five years later, it was only then that you realized how much of your first time there was at night in the dark, your second time totally different, obviously in the daylight, now without checkpoints, without detours, things that had seemed impossibly far away, you suddenly discover were actually right next to each other. But overall, you were struck by the sensation of seeing a country that you thought you knew well as a writer and then seeing it again and realizing you were seeing something entirely different. But with your return to Niora, I wonder if it is less that Niora has changed. Uh, certainly, it hasn't changed as much as Lebanon had changed in those five years, but rather that you had changed. Um, and I wondered if there was something about how your eyes had changed. Does that seem right to you that uh, and if so, could you talk about recognizing that desire to how can I tell what I do everywhere else, but tell it through France, how that might have um, indicated something about you that possibly had changed in looking back at your own life? Yes, you're right. It's totally right. I think my, my eyes had changed, but only not only my eyes, but the place itself had changed. Uh, after 20 years, it was uh, um, really different you know the, the village where I grew up at that time was a kind of a, a very very small town with only a church and two um and two shops and nothing else and it was uh, and now it's it's only like a, a very uh, suburban uh, suburb with uh, full of new houses of people living in town and so that, that had changed a lot but it's true that to write I think probably you need this this um this moment of um Mm, otherness that you 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 realize that you're you're not part of it anymore or or the object you first saw is so different that you can let's say describe uh, the moment between when you saw it for the first time and and what happened then afterwards yeah know? so um that's what happened to me in Lebanon exactly you described it well it was very um it was incredible to discover that those places I, I thought that were so so far away from one another were like on the two hundred meters close, mm. and that we needed like a detour for, for of of one week just to to go there, and 
so um, something like that happened to me exactly in 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 Nyon, in, in in the neighborhoods when I I bought a whole house there uh, recently, like ten years ago, recently, not recently, but ten years ago, and and I felt like I was uh, coming back. You know, I had this sensation that I. Uh, because uh, I lived like 18 years of my life there, so uh, it's um, probably some place I should know very well. Then I, I discovered that I was not so familiar with it after all, you know, and that I still have uh, friends and uh, and family there whose experiences and visions of of life is totally different than mine, and they and even the language, you know, when I left. Uh, uh, France uh, 20 years ago I no no 30 years ago now uh, <laughs> but you know the, the, the language itself has changed not the literary one of course or the possibilities of literature but um, let's say slang expressions and uh, yeah. totally different even the dialect uh, has disappeared more or less meanwhile those uh, 30 years for 25 years time so it was it was a place I knew, but it was something that I didn't know at the end, you know. So I had to rediscover it again, as uh, I think a foreigner would. Mm-hmm. And this space between the young teenager I was when I left and uh, the writer who has already written a few books. When I come back, this 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 space is where the literature can take place and where I can write a novel. Yeah. Well, let's talk about David Mazon, uh, an anthropology student who's finishing his doctoral thesis by coming to your hometown from Paris to, quote unquote, study the natives. Uh, your protagonists are often in your books, either academics or people who quest for knowledge in some way. The musicologist Franz in your book, Compass, you've described his pursuit of knowledge as erotic, a lust to know. And Markovich and Zone, a Croat who works for French intelligence, he's in a way on a journey of self-knowledge around revisiting the violence that he was complicit in during the Balkan Wars. And Lakhdar, the Moroccan in Street of Thieves, he's a voracious reader. All of these characters, I think, give you a lot of latitude as an author around what you can explore from their own minds because of their sort of roving restless intelligences as they each are searching i think for encounter with the other and otherness but david mazon despite being an academic doesn't feel like these characters insofar as he arrives i think from a place of condescension from a place of thinking he knows more more than from wanting to know He's scared of the insects. He's terrified of the local cuisine, snails, eel, water rat pate, and sanket, which is fried blood. And he feels as far away from civilization as if he'd been stationed in the middle of the South Pacific, even though he's only a three-hour train ride from Paris. And all of this adds a comic effect, an element to the whole book, which I loved, And I know that when you were at Barnard College for a visit with the translation center there, you said that your first attraction to Persian and Arabic as a teenager was because they seemed exotic, 
which you acknowledged looking back is a problematic position. And perhaps part of you is poking fun at this impulse to be seduced by one's projection onto the other and onto the foreign. But it also feels like something more here, perhaps a commentary on a certain colonial way of thinking that is the opposite of an eros of knowledge, the op- and perhaps even the opposite of knowledge. So I was hoping maybe you could talk about David a little more as we discover him at the beginning and why he becomes the consciousness that we first experience the book through. You're totally right. So, and uh, for me, David, with this ironic uh, counterpart to France is is a kind of, of uh, opposite of France, the narrator of, of uh, Gombez. He's also an Orientalist, let's say, you know, but, but um, an anthropologist who deals with uh, his fellow citizens, theoretically, but sees them with contempt and distance with all the distance that allows for him, the let's say, the, the weight of knowledge. Mm-hmm. But he will change. We'll see that. You know, that, that he will change through the book. And that was, for me, that was, it was very funny to, to imagine this character. It would be our first eyes, you know, when we enter this, this village, this place. We, we see everything through David Mason's eyes. We read his diary. And that's when we discover this place. And, of course, um, through David's eyes, it's, it's a terrible experience. <laughs> <laughs> you get the feeling that you're entering someplace very tight and, uh, and very dangerous and very remote. You know, the, the problem with David is that he has very, uh, let's say, uh, he wants to, first of all, his goodwill, he wants to, to, to learn and uh, he wants to be, a brilliant anthropologist, and he wants to write a wonderful PhD, and then he wants to have a, a very, very successful academic career. Um, but then he realized himself. We we do realize that that he's he's not that good. That he doesn't say the important things. That he doesn't know nothing, and that he has misread all his um, the, the greats are. Uh, let's say, the great writers of anthropology that he worships, you know, and uh, <laughs> so he's, he's this kind of um, um, very sympathical failure at the end mm-hmm. uh, who will change through the book and become someone else. And, you know, for me, the, the writing of the book really begins, I, I, I mentioned before the, the, the Buddhist, uh, uh, let's say, surroundings of the novel, but for me, the, the real important character at the beginning was David. And uh, he helped me come back myself to, to this place and, and see it as a foreigner. Uh, probably the foreigner I had um, turned myself into after all these years, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, with, with irony and, uh, and uh, let's say, a scientific distance that I don't have. But uh, nonetheless, it uh, it was through, let's say, David's eyes that I came back to, to these surroundings too and, and that I could describe them and more than feel, describe them myself, it was a way of, of actually make the reader enter those places and see it as David as a foreigner. You know, every reader is a foreigner and is a novel. And so we need a guide. 
and David is this guy that will then we will see everything that he doesn't see but first we, we rely on him yeah I love how we start in his eyes but then can see around what he sees in the end I love that about the book one indicator that Mazon is different than your other protagonist, I think, is that he only brings two books with him, a mere two books, one by Victor Hugo and another by the Polish anthropologist Malinowski called Argonauts of the Western Pacific, which is, as I investigated, is a classic of ethnology, and it's part of a trilogy which includes The Sexual Life of Savages in Northwestern Melanesia, and coral gardens and their magic. And when I was looking into him, I discovered that Malinowski was a pioneer of what's called participant observation, that unlike his predecessors, who were more armchair anthropologists, Malinowski believed in immersion in the culture and in participating in it while you're there studying it. And that's something that David is clearly doing as well. He's moving into the village. He's becoming a villager as part of the process of, of creating his data set. But the other thing I discovered is that Malinowski's diaries were published after his death under the title, A Diary in the Strict Sense of the Term, and that they were scandalous. And they created a huge debate about how much or how little it tarnished his research. They've been called racists, they've been called abusive toward the natives, and they're lecherous in detailing his own sexual desires. I bring this up because, as you mentioned, the beginning of the book is in diary format. Much like Malinowski, we're getting Mazon's thoughts far from civilized life in Mazon's notion. We're learning all of it through diary format. These funny battles that David is having with the worms that have infested that have infested his bathroom or the debates about the cats who have joined him but also some very unfulfilling masturbation on the webcam with his partner back in Paris where he even wonders what Walter Benjamin would have thought of cybersex which I thought was so great but which all this makes me think that this diary of David's is perhaps an homage to this other real scandalous diary. And that in some ways, maybe the first part of the book is happening under Malinowski's aura in some way. And I wondered if that was true. If, if perhaps there's a way in which David is carrying the methodology and attitude and personality and also problems of this other anthropologist into uh, Western France. Yes, you're totally right. You discovered that. <laughs> uh, yes, it's true. There was the, the let's say that that Malinowski's diaries were really a, a very uh, important source for me to <laughs> to imagine David's thoughts and David's problems. Like like to reactualize uh, Malinowski's let's say behavior in 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 the West Pacific uh, hundred years ago. And uh, David Mazon in, in in France in his own country in a small uh, village in, in because I, I I discovered that uh, when I read the diaries after reading the the Argonauts and that it was I probably we would all all of us uh, would have uh, felt the same way that Malinowski did uh, we can feel that 
and and when we go to to New York, when you're not a New Yorker, when you go to uh, to Paris, when you're not Paris, you know you, you get all these feelings, that conservatory moments, like you're uh, you're not happy, you're happy, you're not happy, you're not happy, <laughs> you you're angry, you're not angry, you're you're not uh, that everybody would, but when you're supposed to be like uh, carrying on uh, scientific research, very important. And you know the contrasts is 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 crazy because you see from one hand this very brilliant and uh, very important uh, remarks about how the way that people lived. You know he invented this kind of, of participative uh, um, investigation, and and but on the one hand he's, he's just a normal human with his uh, very petty desires and uh, uh, and sexual problems. And, uh, and also uh, abuse, abuse of, of the natives. And, yeah. and you know, we, we, we still don't, uh, cannot read um, the entire diaries, you know, there's still a bit of censorship from... Oh, really? Uh, and it's not, no, yes, I think it's not all, everything is not public yet. Oh, wow. Or, or the edition <laughs> I have is, is only partial. No, that's interesting. Yes, it's very interesting. And, and yeah, so I thought, well, David would be like that. Everybody else, you know, it, uh, he has to be sincere with himself in his diary. Let's say it's only uh, because for him, his diary is a part of his research. As uh, um, he was told as a student that you should have like a field diary when you know, quote, and um, everything so you can uh, rely on it later to later on to, to write your dissertation. And so that's what he's doing. And um, his sincerity for us is very funny, you know, because you say that's something you wouldn't admit. You know, he says things that are very strange. You said that it's it's brilliant to to ask yourself what would Walter Benjamin think about cyber sex. Uh, but, but it's not really relevant either, you know. So, so, <laughs> so uh, David Mason is something like that, that he has very... And say, um, and that's the the well, the the irony and uh, uh, and the laugh also comes from is from his uh, let's say his huge scope and his very very little tiny realization at the end. Yeah. Well, before we leave anthropology, I should mention that Mazon names his rented cabin the Savage Mind, which is a term coined by the anthropologist Claude. Levi Strauss. It is a name of one of his touchstone books when originally translated into English, but the word savage in English has a more decidedly negative, narrow connotation than sauvage in French, which I think is more capacious and evokes a ver more of a variety of tones. That title, when it came out in English, was controversial. And future translations of that same book have titles like Wild Thinking rather than Savage Mind. But it seems to me that your translator, Frank Wynn, was right to translate it into English as Savage Mind as it captures the narrowness of David as we first meet him. And I wanted to ask you about having a savage mind or of wild thinking because you also dedicate the book to the savage thinkers or to the wild thinkers. Talk to us about wild thinking and about the dedication. Who and what are the savage or wild thinkers and what does it mean to 
write this book under a dedication to them? It's very important to see the difference between the savage mind and the wide thinking. Um, you know, in, in France, the world sauvage, it's for me, uh, is much more wild than it is savage. But it's true that, uh, let's say, David Mazon's den <laughs> could be called a kind of, of, of uh, savage mind because he would den himself into a savage, you know, or, or be a kind of, uh, uh, let's say, to inherit. Uh, David Mazon would inherit all those words of anthropology. But for me, what is very important is the wild, because the book is about the wild, too. The wild in nature, what is raw, what is not um, transformed, but what we call civilization. And it has something to do with what we, that we, we don't see in the other, in what surrounds us. And so we are blind to the wild. You know, we don't see. The wild is what we, we cannot see or understand. Mm. And so the wild thinkers, it's also a, a kind of homage to, to Bolaño. Um, oh, you know, interesting. The, the, yes, Roberto Bolaño and his uh, savage, uh, I don't know how they're called in English. The savage savage detective. detectives, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're also wild. They're probably more wild detectives than they are savage. Mm. And because they're, they're unpredictable. And you know, there's this great thing about the wild thinking that it's 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 unpredictable. You cannot foresee or, or imagine what it will be uh, or what it will lead to. And so that's that's why for me the the, the real meaning of, of uh, the wild thinking and, and the wild thinkers is this that you don't see where you're thinking into. Mm-hmm. Well, there's another way you can translate pensée sauvage. And that is as wild pansies. And this connection between pansies and thought even exists in English from when Ophelia says in Hamlet, there's rosemary, that's for remembrance, pray, love, remember. And there's pansies, that's for thoughts. And it's said that Levi Strauss had even suggested for the English title of the book, not Savage Mind or Wild Thinking, but Pansies for Thought, which was a nod to Shakespeare and also to this double meaning within French. But I wanted to suggest that Wild Pansies could be one way to understand your book, because pansies are the most ordinary and commonplace of flowers. And so to place the words wild and pansy together and also pansy and thought together feel similar to how you see the wild within the town you are from, which has always felt so ordinary before, that perhaps this entire book is an act of pensée sauvage, of pansies for thought. And for me, there is at least three or four different ways that it is. And, and they all happen after we depart from David's diary, which is less than the first hundred pages of the book. And one thing we quickly learn, which you've already nodded to, and it's something that David and everyone else are unaware of, but that the book, and by extension us as the readers, we're very aware of this, is that once we leave his diary, we discover that everyone is caught within the Buddhist wheel of time. 
and the book is aware of the reincarnations of each and everything in this town. So there's this boar that is often rooting around the town in the background, sometimes rustling in the bushes while we are with the humans, who's often looking for a mate in his own sort of background narrative, who was once the beloved abbey priest of the village. And before that, he was a frog and a crow and a boatman, despite his own belief when he was a human in a Christian cosmology. And the worms in David's drain that he keeps killing were actually themselves serial killers. Um, some characters were victims of the dragonades of Louis the Fourteenth, the persecution of the Protestants to force their conversion to Catholicism. And throughout the book, there are these really wonderful set pieces where the main character of a section isn't human at all. For example, we will follow the horse that bore Clovis, the first king of the Franks in the 5th century, in the same region that we're in in the contemporary times. Or we follow the bedbug who drinks the blood from Napoleon's ankle during his visit to the region before being crushed by Napoleon. A bedbug who has also been a hedgehog that was crushed, and a farmer, and who is now the current day bar owner, Tubby Thomas. And we learn also that there's no linear time when it comes to reincarnation, no chronology. You can actually be reincarnated in the past, centuries earlier. I have some theories of why this imported element exists within the book, beyond the fact that your wife is Buddhist, and what it is doing for it. But first, I would just love to hear more about how the Wheel of Time operates in the narrative, um, what effect you're aiming for more. You've already talked a little bit about that, but also why you would want us to learn the history of this region through the eyes of a king's horse or an emperor's bedbug. Well, if you admit that um, reincarnation exists, then it's, it changes totally your, your point of view on history, for example, because we read history as a chronological order or something uh, that we go from fathers to son, from mothers to daughters, and, uh, from writer to reader, to reader to writer, and so forth. But uh, uh, if, if you see it in the, in the Buddhist way, that all that is an illusion. When you reincarnate, there's no time. Time is, uh, uh, is totally illusory. So you, you can reincarnate into the future, that was we, we all think about, because we, we think that when we die, we go forward, but also in the past. You can reincarnate like, like 2,000 years ago or, uh, or even eons uh, before time or um, before even the earth was, was, was really the earth. You know, every, everything is possible. So it's um, if I wanted, that was my, my first project, as I told you, uh, to, let's say, to describe this region, uh, also its history, and, and uh, to, uh, let's say, to try to write this history of France through a very, very small place. I said, oh, that it's wonderful, the history of reincarnation, because it allows me to um, make other lines through animals, through people who don't get, you know, light in, in, in history. We don't think that that uh, Clovis was mounted on a horse. We don't think about the horse or 
the bugs and all that, and <laughs> everything. But they were there. Yeah, yeah probably this story about Napoleon is true. I think I'm sure there was some kind of bug that bite them. <laughs> um, I loved being with the so, bugs. <laughs> <laughs> so if I I assume this this possibility, then it was. Uh, uh, a way of, of rewriting the history and, and, and for a writer it was a, a very original way of, of seeing it mm-hmm. because for us uh, France is very far away from any Buddhist thinking you know? so, so and uh, this western remote marches are, are probably I've never seen something like a Buddhist temple you know, until now so uh, there's a distance there. There's a kind of energy that comes from this distance that was very, very interesting to explore. It was a way also to to escape uh, the Catholic or Protestant point of view somehow. That in this place, history are, are very important and are still very present in, in every village and and every town. So um, it was like like. Taking and an, let's say an, another way to to see those those conflicts, mm. uh, and yes, and, and not taking part in it in a way. You know? So it's like uh, uh, we all we all know about the omniscient uh, narrator that that knows everything. So it's an omniscient narrator, but who is a Buddhist? So he he knows very <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, he knows he knows everything more than us. Yeah, he does a lot more than us. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. well, as part of exploring the wheel of time. In your book, we we have a question for you from another person, a book critic uh, and bookseller and fellow podcaster, Lori Feathers. Lori has been a board member of the National Book Critics Circle. She's the co-founder of the bookstore in Terabang Books in Dallas. And she co-hosts the podcast Across the Pond, which explores the most anticipated books on both sides of the Atlantic. And Lori and I we were reading many of your books side by side and her thoughts on them were really invaluable for today. Um, Because she did a deep dive herself into your work, this question I think is particularly deep. So here's a question for you from Lori. Hello, David. Hello, Matthias. Thank you for taking my question today. Matthias, the annual banquet of the Grave Diggers Guild continues a tradition in your novels of exploring death and its measuring stick, time. In this most recent novel, the wheel ceaselessly moves the living from death to birth and from rebirth to death. The wheel brings to my mind the samsara, the continuous cycle of life, death, and rebirth that is the philosophy of your characters Sarah in the novel Compass and Lakdar in your novel, Street of Thieves, where Lockdar takes the job of typing by the kilometer, that is, transcribing the death records of each of the 1.3 million French citizens who were killed in World War I. In Compass, Sarah is living with a tribe in Borneo and writing a paper about the corpse wine drinkers who prepare the bodies of their dead so that they can drink them literally metabolizing the dead within themselves. Sarah and Lactor also share a belief that the Occidental and Oriental worlds have absorbed each other's influences over centuries, creating a common construction between them. 
Do you see the notion of rebirth as an exception to the sharing? In other words, is the continuous cycle of life, death, and rebirth an Eastern philosophy that has been resisted in the West? And if so, why do you think this is the case? Thank you. Thank you, Larry, for your question. It's a very brilliant insight into my work. I, I hadn't noticed all this myself. Um, no, it, it's true. It's a, it's a very interesting point. Uh, but I don't agree with you because I think that um, also in the West, there's always been this uh, very, let's say, sympathy towards uh, reincarnation. And we see this, well, it depends what you call the West, but it's true that there are some, some in the Arab world, for example, uh, Arab thinking, there are many uh, small groups of, uh, of Muslim uh, creeds that, uh, that believe in reincarnation, say for the Alawites, for example, the Alawi or the Druze do. And they are also very strange, and but uh, of course the minorities in in, in the West, uh, you know that that thought about reincarnation and thought it was uh, a possibility for the dead soul to to reincarnate, to be to be reborn in in, in Christianity too. We are in a way, uh, I think, uh, we fear death and. What we want, but maybe not as much as we fear life, probably. So the perspective of being reborn in a society where everybody is poor or everybody is suffering uh, was not appealing, you know. So so uh, we 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 needed the paradise, um, because our life on this earth was so miserable that we we wanted some some. Uh, somewhere where we could uh, experience happiness. Um, and that was in the Middle Ages, for example, I think that that was very important, this the possibility of um, of happiness in, in the other life. Because what, what the Buddhists say is that, no, the suffering is forever. Mm-hmm. You know, that what is eternal is to suffer. So it's not very good marketing, you know, for, for an idea. <laughs> no. Uh, uh, but on the other hand, the paradise is. Yeah. And that's how, for example, the predication of Muhammad begins. It begins with paradise and hell. And say so that if you don't believe, you go to hell. If you if you believe, then you will have the paradise. And so it's it's easy to understand, and then it promises you kind of of um, of happy future, happy end for your soul, not an eternal rebirth of of. Uh, of sufferings for for eons, uh, eternity. But what what I cannot explain is how uh, this idea is so successful in the East. You know that would be another question. Yeah. Um, but it's true that that in my novels, in literature, I'm very very fascinated by this this possibility, and not only because it's interesting as a writing technique but also because it's i think it's a changing point from uh for our point of view toward nature for example mm. you know if you were part of it if you yourself have been an animal for generations uh, or many animals 
So maybe all the animals. Then you don't have this contempt, this human contempt towards nature. Or you're not the master of it. You're just a humble part of it. Uh, lucky enough to be a human this life, but you don't know what you will be in the next. Right. You know? And um, so I think that that it really could change uh, our um, relationship towards. Uh, nature, environment, uh, everything that surrounds us. Mm. So for me, it's, it's, it's very interesting in, in, in many, many ways. Well, to, to extend Laurie's question, much of your work uncovers the ways the so-called East is already in the West, the ways what we consider the West is actually deeply shaped by and indebted to by the East. And your writing is continually working against the tendency to look at the Arab and Muslim world as alien, foreign, barbaric, or irreducibly other. In Compass, we get Beethoven's Compass, which has been altered so that it points to the East. You talk in places about Proust's debt to 1001 Nights, about Cervantes writing under the pseudonym of an imagined Moroccan writer, your own imagining of Michelangelo going to the Ottoman Empire and coming back and having his art changed, all of it asserting that the division between the Occident and the Orient is artificial, where, for instance, in one interview, you called Great Britain and France great Muslim countries. Sarah Encompass, I think, asserts this philosophy, the notion of history as Laurie mentioned, as a common construction, a sharing and absorption that is permeable and overlapping, not a friction of opposing forces, which is what Franz proposes in the same book. Given how much your books foreground hidden or erased histories, I did wonder if this were an exception in the sense that you weren't uncovering a hidden history of Buddhism in rural Western France. As you say, you don't walk around the marshes and see Buddhist temples. Though I will add that Thich Nhat Hanh did live in southwestern France. He didn't live where you were from, but he did live a couple hours away from you. Um, but that you were importing, maybe as an exception, a cosmology into a place that wasn't a deep part of the culture. And that made me wonder in a variety of ways why Buddhism in specific was what was imported in this book. And you mentioned your your wife is a practicing Buddhist. And when I was reading interviews with Charlotte Mandel, your, your longstanding translator before now, I discover that she was a Tibetan Buddhist and she mentions that your wife's a Buddhist and that you've had many conversations with them about Buddhism, which of course, that could be a sufficient explanation in and of itself, that it's simply part of your life. But I, I'm gonna, I suspect it's more, and I want to propose another reason why Buddhism might be in the book. And I wondered if it had to do with your own philosophy of the self or of identity. Uh, when you visited Barnard College's translation studies department, you talked about how you don't believe in closed identities, that you are French, but you write your French language novels on a Spanish keyboard and that our alphabet comes from Syria. And on top of that, your daily life is not in French, but in Spanish and Catalan. 
and yet you also live your daily life in an Arab neighborhood in Barcelona. In that same conversation, you talk about the instability of knowledge, that the gathering of knowledge does not make one more grounded or defined, but actually makes you less so. That as you know more, you know more of what you don't know. And I think we see this in your characters' philosophies as well. The notion of Sarah, the Buddhist, in compass, of the other in the self, that all Europe is in the Orient, that everything is interdependent. And Lakdar in Street of Thieves who says, I am what I read, I am what I have seen. I have within me as much Arabic as Spanish and French. I have multiplied myself in these mirrors to the point of losing myself or constructing myself, a fragile image, an image in movement. And Charlotte Mandel, in one interview, she says that she's memorized a quote from the ancient Greek cynic Antisthenes that goes, to the wise, nothing is foreign, which makes me think of the opening epigraph that you mentioned in the book, the Thich Nhat Hanh, quoting the Buddha. Maybe he's even quoting the Buddha from Southwest France, from Plum Village. In our former lives, we have all been earth, stone, dew, wind, fire, moss, tree, insect, fish, turtle, bird, and mammal. That perhaps the Buddhist wheel of time, while not a historical cultural truth in Western France, is nevertheless echoing a real existential truth about your own personal philosophy of identity, one that can't be contained by a descriptor or which can accumulate over time. Like when Lakdar says again, I am not a Moroccan, a Frenchman, a Spaniard. I am more than that. I am not a Muslim. I am more than that. Does that feel connected at all? That sentiment of um, how a self, what a self is and how a self forms or how a self moves? Because this feels like another way you take it to another level, obviously, with the wheel of time, but maybe that wheel of time's happening within a lifetime also. Maybe our lives are wheels of time. Yes, um, I totally agree with that. It's true. You know, we, we, we are this this kind of, of uh, permanent formation. We tend to see our lives as a beginning and, and, and one end, like, you know, like, like a straight, like a straight line between one starting point and, and one one end. But I don't see it that way, you know. But um, there's so many lines that that made us at the end, you know, and so many uh, things also that we could have been that we're not yet anymore, you know. Uh, so all those um, moments of choice and accidents, uh, uh, encounters, um, readings, uh, you know, travels or not, or um, uh, also. I don't know the, the the most simple encounter with uh, with a white boar in, in, in a field or uh, with a bear in the forest uh, changes your life, you know, for forever. Not because because you you are really affected by it or can be, but um, just the way to to see um, um, that there are also other possibilities of of being alive changes you mm. and. What I think is that every second, uh, you know, we are a different self. 
Of course, we are united by our body, our brain is one. And so that's that brain that leads us from, from birth to, to death. But uh, meanwhile, we are so many forms of, of ourselves uh, that, and we change constantly, or I hope so, uh, that we are not defined by the moment that we are born, but uh, by every second of our lives. And I think that the very, very actual uh, science and brain sciences are saying that this is true, this is the real model, that, that we are always uh, reshaping uh, our brain too. It's uh, always on the move, you know, um, until it stops forever, but that's another question. <laughs> and so for me, you know, my, my I don't know if I, it's my personal philosophy or um, the way I, I, I like to think that my characters think, that's <laughs> uh, probably um, my way of, of representing people. My image of uh, human beings is, is like that. It's, uh, it's to be always on the move. And it's, it's very complicated to uh, think about, for example, the history of, of Europe, the history of, of the United States, and if I don't know that history that well, but uh, as something unique, written that way, and um, it's that it's only, you know, for in Europe, we have this sentiment that, oh, you know, European civilization is this, you know, it, it's, it begins with the Romans, and, uh, and now we have the European Union, and there's a, a very direct straight line that goes <laughs> from the Roman Empire to uh, the European Union, and uh, but it's not like that, you know, that every second there are like uh, movements, changes between exchanges too, between languages, and, uh, realities, different small, uh, and small things. And I think that's also one of my ideas when I began to write The, the Banquet was um, um, to write about history seen from a place where nothing happens. What does it mean? That it means that given it's the very small, uh, there's movement. And so there's there's history, there's change. Uh, there are mixtures of, of very different identities. Um, and that was what, what made it really interesting to, to research and to write too. Well, we haven't yet discussed the other supernatural aspect of the book, which is the Gravediggers Guild and their annual banquet. They have an annual two-day banquet where, in their pact with death, death agrees each year for that span of two days for there to be no deaths so that the gravediggers can congregate and they can gorge on innumerable meats and give speeches and have debates, all told in the spirit of Rabelais. But before we talk about the banquet, which I love and I think is marvelous, I thought we should first talk about Rabelais himself. He's from the same region you were from, from the same setting of the book. And unlike your childhood impression of the region and David Mazon's impression of the area as being provincial, this region did produce a very outward-facing, cosmopolitan, remarkable man, a, a novice of the Franciscan order, yet also an anti-clerical humanist a doctor, one of the first doctors to dissect a human body, and yet also a bon vivant, 
and he was a Greek scholar and a botanist and much more. And though he spoke many languages, we know him most not only for his books, but for what he does to and with the French language within them. David Mazon says that the local dialect of the village reminds him of Rabelais, but he also says that he finds Rabelais unintelligible, which I think is great. Um, and yet, no spirit, I think, more animates your book than Rabelais, particularly the 140-page banquet scene. In a way, he's another example of the wild pansy, I think, of the extraordinary found in the ordinary of your childhood home. But I would love to hear you talk to us about what Rabelais means for you or for the book, and also about Rabelais' French and how it may or may not affect your own French when you write in in this book specifically. I, I remember when I was a child, when I, I went to school, that we always, we studied Rabelais, like we had like two, three pages in the textbook about uh, Gargantua and Pantagruel, the giants. That was always about uh, Gargantua is the main character of his books, the, the giants, and his song is called Pantagruel. And Rabelais first uh, wrote about the song, uh, Pantagruel, and then wrote about the father Gargantua. But Gargantua was an existing character. It was um, like a mythological uh, figure of the West uh, of France, like a, a giant uh, with many histories and, um, in the early Middle Ages. Uh, but I remember when I was a child at school that, that we studied him, but it was uh, very complicated. You know, we thought, because we always studied the same very boring passages about um, what Gargantua knew, how he learned Greek and all the uh, very humanistic uh, uh, scholarship at that time. So it was, it, it was very, very difficult to understand for children and, or even teenagers. Because it had to do with the knowledge of that time and how um, the way to um, like learning all the sciences or the way to also to to free yourself from the church and uh, and the Latin uh, uh, knowledge of, of of the time. So I really rediscovered Rabelais later on, uh, like maybe twenty years later, uh, and it was through a visit. Uh, of this abbey in the book where the, the banquet took place and uh, called uh, Maize, where uh, François Rabelais was a novice uh, for a few years and where he idea this old abbey de Selem, uh, this, this famous um, place in his novels. And there I realized that I knew nothing about this uh, François Rabelais, uh, that I was very ignorant in, in that field. That was maybe, I don't know, 20 years ago. When, and I began really seriously reading him. Uh, and it's, it's, it's really amazing. First of all, because it's much more, it's very much more easy. It's very easier than I thought it was. Uh, his French, of course, is a very different, like the way it's, it's written. Uh, the autograph is, is totally different. Like you don't write that way now. But if you say it aloud, for example, you understand everything. Mm. 
just reading it aloud and, and and then it's it's something else because you discover that um it's only the way the words are written that are very different but his French is like a very old version of, of uh, our language but what is amazing is his freedom when he makes of the language because he's the first to write novels in French it's the first one so he can do anything whenever he wants yeah. he uses like all <laughs> mythological characters put them into um, the France of his time um, writes stories mocks uh, historical figures um, criticizes the, the thinkers of his time all this through a novel and that's totally new uh, and this freedom is, is it's, it's incredible so I I, I realized that, that that it was so so important and, uh, uh, and it's quite difficult to describe this in English but this is his French is um, is unique you know no one writes French like him leading up to today I was wondering why Rabelais wasn't more read in the Anglophone world I do know in English that the phrase Rabelaisian I think it fundamentally misunderstands the author because Rabelaisian in English, at least it means vulgar, raunchy or earthy, which is writing very much is it's often reveling in the scatological and also the comedy of being in bodies. But that phrase entirely misses the other half of him, the linguistic wordplay including writing under anagrams of his own name, the allusions to philosophy and science, including Islamic thinkers, his nods to languages from Arabic to Hebrew, his thinly disguised caricatures of his real-life peers, his skewering of the morality of his time. And it isn't that the two coexist in Rabelais, I don't think. It's actually, I think, that he's arguing that they're inseparable, that perhaps... In some ways, he's the most anti-Cartesian author, that the mind and the body for Rabelais are forever together. Um, it makes me think when I studied anatomy, a, a teacher that I had in school, the anatomy teacher, said, we are nothing more than a glorified tube. And Rabelais is, I think, very focused on the tube, from the mouth to the anus, but also the glory of everything we are that is wrapped around the tube. So when I think of your epic banquet scene, you have the pairing of the most impossible gluttony, the obscene amount of food and drink that is consumed, while at the same time, the delivering of these speeches on ancient philosophy. And it seems to capture this union of the high and the low. And yet when one person gives a speech on Rabelais himself during this banquet, he's pelted with food and seemingly people are unfamiliar with who Rabelais was, which made me wonder if it wasn't just in the Anglophone world where he's neglected. But my theory was that it was perhaps this very intense engagement with French and also with caricatures within French culture that might make it harder to translate to an English audience. But by extension, it made me also wonder if there was anything about your book that was similarly hard to imagine an English audience understanding fully. 
anything that you'd want to orient us to in the English language, in the English language world, something that you think maybe we would miss that a French audience would be less likely to miss? Is there anything about the grave, the grave diggers banquet that you, you would imagine Frank would have a particularly hard time conveying that, that someone else in France wouldn't have a hard time understanding? Well, there were so many things that were difficult, I think, for Frank went. Um, but if you're talking about the banquet, I think the, the main problem was, uh, you know, all the, the, the food or uh, they eat and things I, I quote are quite familiar to French people. Even the wines and the cheeses are more or less something you you don't eat them every day, but you you more or less know what they look like or have a, a remote idea of what they are, but this is totally different to to it's totally different to an English reader. That is it's totally exotic, something you don't know what it's like. You don't know what it um, <laughs> even what it what it smells like. You know, it's a, and even the name of the wines that for us are very well known because it's name of regions of. Uh, of places in France, so um, every French man can tell you where the Rhone is or the Vallée du Rhone and, and uh, what the Côte du Rhone looks like or tastes like. Um, but I think that for 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 an English audience, uh, it's very very difficult. So it was quite impossible for Frank Wynne to to translate this. He had to let's say to use the words like they were and. Uh, Without any explanation, he tried to to put some uh, to add some kind of uh, of explanation into English, but it was very it was quite impossible to rewrite, let's say this this kind of of passage. And it's also the problem with Rabelais, actually, that his French is so precise, so um, let's say so related to his time and that it's very difficult to translate too into into English. It's really it's full of jokes of uh, puns with words and that very uh, make it very difficult to translate. So I think that's why it probably is not so uh, well read into in, in the US or in the UK. But also, you know, there's this distance with time that makes it uh, Probably more time has passed, but I think it's like like the English would uh, read Chaucer, for example. You know, it's very difficult to read; seems very far away as a reality. And so, I don't think that you know you read it at school. You read you, know, you read parts of it, but uh, it really takes time and um, a bit of uh, of will. Yeah. to really get into it. Yeah. You know? So that's the same with, with, with Rabelais. But it's true that, the, let's say, for the book, for for the banquet in itself, it was very useful to have this very strong, powerful figure of French literature nearby. And uh, this Franciscan novice in this abbey. So I, I was very happy to, to use him, to put him into the book and to, to use him as an asset for this um, the literary heritage of the region, let's say something mm. like that. Well, let's spend another. I want to spend another. I want to spend another moment with the banquet itself. When I when I was looking into who Malinowski was, 
I discovered his thoughts about the rituals of the dead. And he said regarding the dead and the bodies of the dead that, quote, the emotions are extremely complex and even contradictory. The dominant elements, love of the dead and loathing of the corpse, passionate attachment to the personality still lingering about the body, and a shattering fear of the gruesome thing that has been left over. These two elements seem to mingle and play into each other. The twofold contradictory tendency, on the one hand, to preserve the body, to keep its form intact, or to retain parts of it. On the other hand, the desire to be done with it, to put it out of the way, to annihilate it completely. I feel like you, like Rabelais, as an opposite or as a counter-narrative to Malinowski, try to bring these two elements together, the love of the person and the fear of the body. I, I think of the article that Lori Feathers sent me about the corpse wine drinkers in Borneo, inspired by your character, Sarah. Lori sent me a scientific article or an anthropological article and how the process of making rice wine, where balls of rice were put in a glass jar that was then sealed for it to ferment, and the process of preparing the corpse in the same villages with the body put into a glass jar in the fetal position and then sealed, that both are sort of inversions of each other, that in the case of rice wine, the rice balls are removed, and in the case of the corpses, the liquid that they produce is removed. But the ceremonies of the dead involved some form of either literal or symbolic encounter with the taboo of the body and its substances, as if an inverted form of the everyday rice wine. In the village of your book, there are only three trades that are prominent, carpentry, engineering, and the disposal of the dead. Two of these are acts of composition, and one is an act of decomposition. And the mayor himself is the undertaker, so he's sort of an emblem of both. He symbolizes the bringing together of the community, the construction of culture, and also the breaking down of, of the body. But the centerpiece of this book is the annual banquet, where all the gravediggers, whether they're Muslim, Jewish, atheist, Marxist, Catholic, or otherwise, they gather for these two days when no one dies. But we also learn they're vegetarian year-round, except for these two days, where during those two days they gorge on obscene amounts of meat. So on the only two days that they're not burying the dead, they are actually consuming the dead. Uh, So talk to us more about how this all works for you, and and maybe even more interesting too, is there an origin story to this invention of yours? Is there some um, narrative to how you stumbled across this uh, uh, this imagined fes- festival that becomes so central to the book? Yes, of course, there's a story there. You know, it, it has to to do with with Kafka. Uh, mm-hmm. so I was I was in Prague. Uh, and I was visiting Prague with kind of a Kafka tour, like you know, uh, so many readers and writers do, <laughs> actually, when they go to Prague. And accidentally, I, I, I 
I noticed that there was in, in front of the Jewish cemetery, of one of the Jewish cemetery in the old town, there was this this small uh, synagogue, and and aside from the small synagogue was actually a museum. Uh, there was a very tiny house, like you say, like almost like a dollhouse, uh, very very proud, very like fourteenth, uh, fifteenth century architecture, and that was actually where the uh, Undertaker's Guild used to be, huh. and I discovered that this the Undertaker's Guild was something very, uh, you know, uh, that was. Um, Jewish Undertaker's Guild uh, existed in, in many towns, many cities in, in the Middle Ages until to modern times. And in this particular small house where the, the Undertakers used to, used to live, not live, but work at least, uh, there was a, a small exposition, exhibits of, uh, of paintings, paintings from the 18th century showing uh, banquets and uh, in uh, actually it was in, in, in the fields well in near near the city you could see the, the city outside and and they were under trees like with the huge tables people eating together and there was a, a sign that said um, to consolate themselves from their very sad work the grave diggers give themselves every year a huge banquet. And I said, "Oh, that's beautiful. That's really that's that's incredible. It is, you know, because it's it's so it's so real. You know, it's very sad. You you are um, burying the dead every day, so it's a very huge burden because you you know that you will you will bury not only the people you don't know, but also your your brothers, your mothers, you everybody in the community will die and will eventually come to your hands. So um, so it's a very very sad job, and I thought that they really deserved those those, those banquets. Yeah. But I went a step further. Imagine that um, they have this really old agreement with death herself, you know, and that they so no one would die during the the Undertaker's banquet, so they can really rest and enjoy uh, without having to bury it. And I said, well, uh, that's a good idea. And, uh, I wanted to, to, because, you know, it's, if the book was about the wheel of time and reincarnation, it also had to deal with the, the, the Catholic or Protestant or Jewish side of it, you know, and, uh, which is very, very important. And it's more, well, it's even more important in small towns or villages where everybody knows, you know, that the, everybody knows the, the undertaker at the time, you know, the story that, the undertaker of, of the village was indeed the mayor. It's true. You know, it's, it's happened. In oh, the... really? Yes, really, really. <laughs> That's it's really true. Place nearby. I, love near, that. I have my house. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, they are like, uh, they represent at the end, they are like the eternity. Hmm. You know, because we all always die. So there's always something since the beginning of humanity, there's always someone taking care of the courses. And that's what defines us, you know, also as, uh, as humans, is that where we first begin to uh, have special rituals towards the, the, the dead body. And so 
they're like for me that there's of course the the this link through time uh, between uh, the living and the dead and so that that's why they they're so important you know? and the idea of a banquet is very it's very interesting literary wise too because you know we have this tradition of, of uh, philosophical banquets in, in the west and then to greek tradition so it was very very interesting you know plato's well socrates banquet is about love and uh, what does it mean to love be loved uh, mine is more about what does it mean to to die in and uh, the way that we care about the dead it was very fun to research by the way and for example, I, I had the opportunity to go to Paris and, and visit the the annual fair of the undertaker's business. Oh wow, <laughs> that, that was fascinating because you see how you know when I I I, I use it a bit in the book when I talk about like this um, eco burials and uh, mm-hmm. eco graveyards without you no. Know, uh, pesticides, nothing like that. But there was also very, very strange things, like you know, like the the wired coffin with internet. Oh no way! Yes, yes, yes. You had a coffin with internet. <laughs> so for the people who are who fear to be buried alive, yeah. Uh, oh, and if God. you wake up, you know, you 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 can call somebody. Yeah, and that's very frightful because you know, I'm home, and then then suddenly I get a buzz. And then that's mum ringing from a grave, <laughs> from you know. Grave. <laughs> it's it's totally crazy. It, it also allows you to to show pictures and and music in the coffin and uh, at the funeral and stuff like that. So you know, modernity is is transforming everything, you know. And and you have, even have like like wired uh, coffins with internet. That's, yeah, which is totally absurd. But, yeah, it's it's kind of wonderfully absurd. Um, mm. Well, you've mentioned so we've we've touched on Rabelais, we've touched on Kafka, and we touched on Buddhism as influences. And I wondered if there was a formal influence because a lot of your books have very distinctive forms. You said you use the structure of triangles for your book. Tell them of battles, kings and elephants, which has three main characters, three religions, and three voices. Um, zone is one long sentence. Compass is this blend of diary, travel writing, and memoirs, which made me wonder if it is related to the form of older Arabic works. As you've said that within classical Arabic literature, there are works from the 8th and 9th century that are mixes of anecdotes, tales, verses, poetry, prose, philosophy, and stories. And you also mentioned a more contemporary Arabic work, Leg Over Leg, which you've described mm-hmm. as a mix of epic novel, travelogue, political encyclopedia, autobiography, and Arabic dictionary. And one thing that I notice is that Zone and Compass, they're two books that on the surface seem very outward-facing and very exterior with all of their travel, that they're both actually books structured around long interior monologues. And your latest book, which at first glance seems like it would be quieter as it's rooted in one single out-of-the-way place, your, your latest book is actually very exterior and very mobile and rarely, if ever, for long, is in one person's mind or dreams. It isn't structured around one long monologue. 
Um, this new book has poems, songs, sermons, a diagram of card games, speeches, theater scripts, diary entries, excerpts of Seneca's letters, just to name a couple things among many. And I guess it made me wonder if there was a forum for this book, a shadow book that is in conversation with the actual book or a tradition of forums that informs this book uh, or not. Now, you know, when I, I, when I imagine book, when I, I, I first begin, uh, when I, I begin, let's say, the, the proper writing, not, not the idea that I have first in my mind, but when I begin to write, I need an image. I need a form. I am no one without form, without and so when I I, I started really started the, the the writing of the annual banquet, I, I imagined a book that was like uh, um, a retablo in the Catholic Church. You know, these images that unfold themselves. That you have like uh, many stories told at the altar uh, in parts. So you have the first and the last one that fold into together, like they are David Mason's parts that open and close the book. And then you have the middle part. It's all the stories uh, uh, of the, let's say, the wheel of uh, of time. And then in the middle, you have the banquet. And it's like the, the most sacred uh, image uh, of all. And then you have the hinges. You know, if you have something that unfolds, that you that like doors, you, you need hinges in the middle. So those are the songs that are, uh, let's say, adaptations of French popular songs made into into short stories. And so, so that was the image in my mind, and, and and that's how I said, well, it had to unfold into at the end giving up part of the whole picture, you know. With this banquet in the center, that was my my image of the book. So of course the form is very important, as um, um because it's I don't know I I, I guess I I like uh, or uh, I lack probably imagination in a way you know that I I I need something to to write with, and form is this it's uh, a pattern uh, you you can use to. Um, to know where you're going. And, you know, you mentioned Zone. Zone is, uh, is about kilometers of train ride between Milano and Rome. And that what helped me you know, to uh, be able to, to write all these stories together because I knew that I was at the page 150, I was at 150 kilometers from Milano to Rome. I mean, I was halfway to Bologna. So yeah. <laughs> I always knew where I was. Huh. And I think that I... I really need this kind of uh, yes of, of of pattern to to be able to to write a novel. Some people have suggested that your method or form in this book is bricolage, a term of Levi Strauss, a method that's used in art and writing, but it's also used in an anthropological context. The idea of the adoption of diverse materials from whatever happens to be available. So, for instance, a tribe might have an otherwise cohesive and self-contained system, but they may nevertheless incorporate something from a neighboring tribe that doesn't 
automatically seem like it's part of that system, but it becomes part of that system. It's like a flexible process and not wedded to any form of purity. And I wondered, I, that seemed like one way you could explain the, the bringing in of the wheel of time, the, uh, the neighboring tribe being your wife and your translator and their, and their Buddhist philosophies. But do you consider yourself a bricoleur? Um, do you, do you think bricolage is, is one way we could look at how, how this book came together? Yes, you know it has to do, to do with the uh, the hinges, like I said. Yeah, <laughs> it's a kind of bricolage, you know. There's something very like you use anything that's available, and uh, you put it together into a new construction or something new. But it's true, also. Of course, it's difficult to see that in in the English translation. But uh, the banquet is also a history of the French language and the French literature. So I use a lot of registers from. Uh, let's say from medieval, old French poetry until nowadays languages passing through Rabelais and uh, Victor Hugo and a lot of, of, of figures that are form or a way to, to speak and write French at their time. So it's the book is also kind of of, uh, of bricolage of, of also of, of languages you know together, and we see all these states of. Uh, the French language from, like, let's say, yes, from Latin, uh, the Romans until today. So it's also kind of uh, a French manual it can be used like this. Even even though the spirit of the book, I think the spirit of the book is open-hearted and promiscuous, David isn't the only one in the book who's closed and defended when, when the book opens. The mayor is relieved that the increased population of the region hasn't led to more foreigners other than the British in the village. And at one point he says, we stopped the Arabs around these parts a long time ago. And he supports forced integration of immigrants so that they abide by the established French customs. But overall, the more free-spiritedness of the book and of the land and its histories, it it works on David. It changes David, as you mentioned at the very beginning. He changes. When we return to that panel, the first and last panel touch, when we, when we return to the diary uh, after many hundreds of pages away, he's becoming more and more part of this place. Living in his cabin, called the Savage Mind, is changing his mind. He even says at one point, my erudition was like a haze of insecticide sprayed from a can, erratic, toxic, and quick to disperse. And just prior to returning to David's diary, we are in the past lives of a villager named Gary, who was once a landlady, a leather worker, a bombardier, and a gray she-wolf. And this wolf gets rabies from a red fox, and is then ultimately decapitated by a man. And it's in this vignette, right before we return to the diary, where we learn about wolf extinction and the bounties for wolves in the 19th century. And as we return to David after this, the book extends an ecological concern. David's girlfriend, Lucy, is an activist in what are called the Pond Wars in the region, 
David starts not only thinking of becoming a farmer of medicinal herbs and a juicer of fruit tree fruits, but also begins writing poems. Um, it made me wonder if these pond wars were based on real threats in the world of this region outside of the book, but also more about how you see David's move from anthropology, which is a certain way of looking, obviously, that we've discussed, to farming and poetry, from, I think, studying and elsewhere to now tending to a sort of hereness. Yes, I think there's a moment where you have to take part of what, uh, let's say, of what surrounds you. Know, and that what's happened with David is that he discovered that at the end, what he was interested in was be a part of that place. And that's why he wanted to research so much this PhD about uh, uh, these, uh, in anthropology about what does it mean to live in the countryside uh, nowadays. It's because he wanted, somehow he wanted to um, be a part of it. And actually in the third part, uh, the important issues um, are real, let's say, nowadays issues there about water use and uh, um, eco farming and everything, it's it's very important there. And so David uh, is uh, at the same time, I think has done this kind of transformation of um, someone from the outside that is transformed by the its surroundings, by his surroundings, and uh, turned into into a savage himself, you know, he's, he's, <laughs> he's more, um, he's beginning at the end more, I don't know, more, more local mm-hmm. than no one could ever be, you know, because he's so conscious about what it means to be there. Uh, and also it's very interesting to see that he interests himself for, for literature, you know, like, like writing. At the end, this diary, writing a diary has led him to, into, writing something else, you know, not only, um, let's say, poems or bits of poetry, but also writing what we are reading now. You know? So he is uh, uh, the narrator of the book, the real narrator of the book is David at the end. So. And we don't know when the middle part is not uh, written by by David himself, it could be. You know? Who knows? But I think it's, really, it's part of his transformation. Well, you're also a poet. We, I don't think we have any of your poetry in English yet, but you have a collection with a great title, Final Message to the Proust Society of Barcelona. But you've written David's poems. Just Since we don't have a way to know how you write poetry when you're not writing poetry as David, how, how, is, how are David's poems in comparison to Matthias and Ars poems? David, David's poems are fun. You know, I... I... Yes, I, I have a, a small book of, of poetry published a few years ago. It's more about travel and uh, and places, travel stories into poems. Mm. And so it's quite different from from David Mazel's poetry. But I love I love poetry. Yeah, but it's just not translated into English yet. I hope one day. Well, David Shift also made me wonder if David Mazon has the last name Mazon because of the French historian Albin Mazon, 
the microhistorian because you've mentioned even his philosophy already in this conversation because he believed, as you've also stated for yourself, you couldn't sufficiently learn about the past only from the stories of the powerful, that we needed the stories of the small communities and that as you've, I think, proved with this book, the bigger stories of history can be told from this out-of-the-way place, or perhaps the bigger stories of history can be told from nearly any place, uh, as, as you can pick a place, but you can also pick the point of view of the smallest insect and engage with Napoleon. You have beautiful pastoral writing in this book, like, for instance, quote, Lynn liked working in the countryside. She liked the narrow roads, the villages. She loved to see a deer on the edge of a forest or a rabbit hopping through a meadow to surprise a snuffling hedgehog at night, to catch a glimpse of a carp at daybreak in the river Sevres. Wherever she walked, she reveled in nature's perpetual movement, felt part of the riotous illusion of the world, She loved this place for its fragility, born of uncertainty, this rustle of indecision between the beautiful and the commonplace. But in other places in the book, with you remembering more eventful times of the same place, you say things like, A far-off time when the plains between Tours and Niort teemed with miracles and wandering saints. And I think what's amazing is you've conjured this other time of dynamic history unfolding within the here and now, especially even now imagining maybe David wrote these other pieces. Maybe David wrote the pastoral. Maybe David also wrote this imagining of the same region with the wandering saints and miracles. I know we didn't talk about David's only other book, 93 by Victor Hugo, which is set during the counter-revolutionary uprisings during the French Revolution, some of which were taking place in Western France. But you've made this region endlessly interesting, ecologically, historically, cosmologically, and otherwise, which feels in many ways like an act of love. I know you've had other books in French since writing this one, but perhaps as a way to end, we could hear about how writing this book and finishing this book, how it affected what you wanted to write next. What returning to Nior as a microhistorian, if you consider yourself a microhistorian in this book, a microhistorian with a savage mind, what did that do with regards to next topics or literary desires on how you wanted or where you wanted to go next in your imagination? First of all, it, it changed me, myself, as a, as a human being and my relationship toward nature, for example. You know, I was, uh, after the writing of the book, and so after spending so many time there and researching, wandering around and, um, into the wild, let's say, so I, I, I felt uh, my relationship toward this place was very different at the end. Uh, and I knew more, and I felt more, and I felt more um, part of uh, of this ecosystem, let's say. Mm. Uh, but also, it's true that my, my desires and literature have changed afterwards. 
I want it to go away, to go. <laughs> I want it to switch uh, places. And, uh, so the, the next book, next novel is about um, East Germany, Berlin, and mathematics and war. Uh, and the 21st century, uh, 20th and 21st century. So it's, it's, it's totally different. Uh, it's more like let's say zone or or my first books and away from from uh, from the west of france and now now I'm, I'm writing again i'm um, going back into the arab world trying to write kind of uh, i don't know uh, a novel uh, set in the the arab world a kind of saga i guess family stories so you never know what uh, I think that's one of something I've I've learned that you you don't know really where will your next book will take you. Not until it's finished. Yeah. You know? But you know that it will be some transformation also for yourself. And that what happened to me with the writing of the banquet, I saw. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure to talk with you today about Thank you, it. David. It was great, great, wonderful conversation. We're talking today to Matthias Sanar about his latest book in English, The Annual Banquet of the Gravediggers Guild. And listening to Between the Covers, I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. Every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests, and every listener supporter receives the supplementary resources with each conversation of things I discovered while preparing for it, things referenced during it, and places to explore once you're done listening. Additionally, there are a variety of other potential gifts and rewards to choose from, including the bonus audio archive, which includes readings, craft talks, and long-form conversations with translators, or the Tin House Early Readership subscription, getting 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers or if you prefer a one-time donation you can do so by paypal at tinhouse.com support i'd like to thank the tin house team elizabeth DeMeo, elisa ogie in the book division beth steidel in the art department becky kramer and jay nichelle in publicity and lance cleland the director of the summer and winter tin house writers workshops Finally, I'd like to thank past Between the Covers guest, poet, musician, composer, performer, and much more, Alicia Jo Rabins for making the intro and the outro for the show. You can find out more about her work, her writing, her music, her film, and more at aliciajo.com, A-L-I-C-I-A-J-O.com.